welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm very happy to be here this afternoon with Grant Faber. He is a research assistant at the Global CO2 Initiative and a master's student at the University of Michigan in the Sustainable and Complex Systems. I don't know if that's a department or if that's your your subject area, Grant. Tell tell us before we go deep into your history, which I want to do a little bit about what you're studying. Yeah, certainly. So I'm at the School for Environment and Sustainability at U of M. Uh, it used to be called the School for Natural Resources and Environment. And my specific track is sustainable systems. Um, and then I'm also a student in the Graduate Certificate of Complex Systems Program. So I usually, so it's a lot of systems. So I usually just tell people that I study sustainable and complex systems. Uh, so naturally, I spend a lot of time thinking about systems. Give me an example. I mean, I know in our um, work with climate, every things that I read say it is one of the problems that most requires systems thinking. Give me an example of a sustainable system and how you think about, how you think about systems. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's, there's a really, really wide range. Um, a lot of people in my program focus on the food, energy, and water, uh, those systems individually, kind of the intersection between all of those different systems. Um, in my particular case, because I'm a research assistant at the Global CO2 Initiative, I spend much more time thinking about carbon capture uh, and carbon capture utilization, sequestration, and how those might fit more broadly into the whole system of our industry and of our economy and how, the, how those can really help us reduce emissions. But through my coursework, I've looked at a, really a lot of different systems ranging from stuff as arcane as agent-based models of the central Maya lowlands all the way to looking at renewable energy penetration in, in 2050 and whatnot. So uh, it's really quite broad what, what I look at and, and think about. And as you mentioned, climate is a problem in so many different sectors. And so I agree that it, it requires that systemic kind of thinking, particularly when change in one area or one field can have cascading impacts in a different one, such as the case of mobility. You might electrify transport to reduce transportation emissions, but then that has spillover effects to the energy and electricity sector and the emissions there. And so you really want to consider all of these types of things systemically, which is uh, what I hope to, to do with my career going forward. Uh-huh. That is <laughs> so much. So when I, I want to um, sort of translate it into the way when I think about, I think the average guy can think about systems thinking and climate action within a system. You said something in there about cascading effects. And that is sort of the root of it, isn't it? Is I'm is how you anticipate and model and plan for cascading effects. Is that do I sort of have it right? Yeah, that's um that's a part of it. And that is what I spend some time thinking about. So there's Cascading impacts or so-called reinforcing feedback loops in terms of the physical climate as the world warms, and then different things other than just the global mean average surface temperature are, are affected. So things like, say, melting permafrost in the Arctic that releases methane, which worsens, um, worsens climate change overall. And then there can be, from increased temperature and a general 
aridification. There can be increased wildfires, which reduce nature's ability to serve as a carbon sink, and that has other impacts. And those impacts can affect each other, and then it's a cascading uh, physical or ecological impact. But then there's also the social ones as well that are important to think about in terms of um, if, say, people are forced to migrate out of a particular area because their niche is no longer, or their um, environment is no longer really suitable for the general human niche, um, if they have to migrate, and if you have tens, hundreds of millions of people moving from one area to another, that has cascading geopolitical and social consequences that we'll need to think about and, and plan for. And it gets quite difficult to really model these just because of the sheer complexity of the the, the global system, not just in terms of ecology, but also the, our societies, um, that it's, it's so complex to model and so difficult to quantify some of these things. But it's quite certain that climate change makes all of them worse. And there's very few positive things that will really come as a result of climate change, which in my mind makes it an extremely important thing to work on, uh, which is why I do so. It, it feels like um, the sort of, I mean, what you just described you know, then it affects the social realm. And it ends up in my, it ends up being so much that I just go, I can't take it. Right. And like the, I think the tendency is to sort of walk away from some of these things and just leave it up to someone else. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you're part of the someone else. I count myself somewhat in a corner of the someone else's. Before we go any further into all the technical stuff that you're so smart on, I want to just ask a little bit about you, um, because we don't actually know each other that well, Grant. So where, tell us um, where you're from and where you grew up and how'd you, that's two questions. I should just leave it at that. Where are you from and where did you grow up? <laughs> yeah, so I'm from Metro Detroit, a very small suburb, and that's also where I grew up. You know, I spent my whole life in the same house. Um, and then, uh, so I so I grew up and then I chose to go to the University of Michigan uh, when I came to college, which was just like a 40, 45 minute drive away. And part of that choice, it was actually the only place I applied. Um, and part of that choice was because uh, my mother had, had gone to U of M. She got her master's degree here as well. And when I was a little kid, she would actually take me to some of her courses. And uh, so she'd take me to Ann Arbor and I loved it. It was so much fun. Beautiful restaurants, cool people, cool architecture. Um, and so it always left this good impression on me, and I always felt so cool as this little kid, like listening in on her on her courses and whatnot. Uh, and so that inspired me. I was like, okay, I really, really want to go to to U of M. And so I was the only place I applied uh, out of high school, and it, it all worked out. Um, so I did my undergraduate in business here um, at the Ross School of Business, uh, and focusing in finance, particularly um, with the minor in environmental science. Um, had a few different internships, worked a few different places, and worked on some university carbon neutrality stuff. And then I ended up at the School for Environment and Sustainability here uh, as well. And so that's where I am now with uh, just one year left. What a great story. Your mother inspired you. As a mother, I'd love to think that I might have this power. What was your mother studying? Uh, so she was studying information science um, in hopes of being a librarian. And it, she didn't end up becoming a librarian uh, for various reasons, but um, she still uh, she still completed her master's degree and had a, had a fairly good time at at U of M. So yeah, that was, that was mm -hmm. part of the inspiration. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she's also quite an analytical thinker that also shaped you a little bit. So I am all I, I've never been to Detroit, and I'm very curious about Detroit. Um, 
not to dwell too long, but I think the the stereotype for Detroit is kind of this blighted city. But then there's also a, a, a parallel conversation going on about how Detroit can be such a wonderful case study for sustainability and regenerative fill-in-the-blank type projects. Do you have any of that um, exposure? Do you see that from from being there? Um, so I grew up in a small suburb outside of Detroit, and I'm maybe not the best person to speak to it. Um, I do know of many urban farms and urban gardening projects, which are a pretty cool example of, of localization and getting our food from from local sources, uh, which is much less emissions intensive and can help us have a better and healthier relationship with our food. Um, and uh, my, my wife is actually a uh, first grade teacher at Detroit Public Schools Community District. So, um, you know, I have some exposure through through her work there. Um, and we talk a lot about the city. And then she teaches on the, the west side a little closer to Dearborn. And um, there's, there's definitely a lot of environmental justice issues that go on in, in the city, uh, which serve as a big motivator for us to, to help work on these things. Because so often things like um, you know, not, we know climate change and climate injustice has these disproportionate impacts on the global south, people who have emitted far less than the global north. But um, in terms of local pollution and, and those sorts of things and uh, discriminatory housing policy and whatnot, um, they have had a large effect on Detroit over time. And my wife sees some of that and, and her teaching sees the results of some of it. So, um, you know, we're, we're very conscious of, of those kinds of things. Um, so. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very good community, though, um, a very very good community, very nice and, and sociable people. Uh, quite quite different than the, than the suburb I, I grew up in, where you always felt like somebody was watching you and you were walking down the sidewalk or something like that. Um, and maybe not the most comfortable place, but um, but yeah, the, I really like the community in Detroit. People are just so incredibly nice and, and kind. Um, right on. I um one of the things you said in there really ties nicely with our experience with travel. Um you mentioned that your wife is seeing daily some of these impacts, the disproportionate impact of uh climate change on disadvantaged communities and I think this is something that happens with travel also is and and then it it motivates you more because you have this real life awareness of it and when we travel, we also, I know in my travel career, I have been affected by things I have seen firsthand and people I have met firsthand. And um, that has absolutely informed my passion for, for climate action. Um, have you had any, any trips or other experiences of your own that have kind of sharpened your um, desire to work in climate? Yeah, so I, I do actually. Um, so an undergraduate, I helped run a club called Students for Clean Energy. And it was a club that basically advocated for the university to use 100% renewable energy. And now it's a little broader. It's more about carbon neutrality as a whole. And every year as a club, we would take a trip to West Virginia uh, to learn about the effects of mountaintop removal coal mining. And that is basically a process where the coal companies come in and they cut down all of the trees. They take all of the topsoil away, and then they use dynamite and explosives to basically blow up the whole mountain, and then they carve out all of the coal underneath. And they can turn a whole 
beautiful mountain with a very diverse ecosystem into a moonscape. I mean, it really looks like the surface of the moon when they're all done. It's just like a flat, flat slab of rock. And so we would go down there um, and we would stay in one place in particular called Kayford Mountain. Um, and, and we would go and we would get a tour uh, from the keepers of the mountain. And they would they would show us what, what happened and what the mountain used to look like and then kind of the cascading impacts on the local communities and on, on the environment and the toxic chemicals that many of the people were exposed to, either from the chemicals used in the explosions um, or just that they were exposed to from these mountains being destroyed. Um, and it, it was it was a shocking experience to see that kind of thing firsthand. And it really was a was a big motivator as part of our club. Um, it's a big motivator for us to work in clean energy because, you know, there's, there definitely are issues with extraction of the materials required for wind turbines and solar panels. Um, there's no doubt that, that, you know, there are sacrifice zones and whatnot created with those, but they're so, they, they pale in comparison to the extraction required for the coal and natural gas, especially in places like West Virginia. Um, and so it was a big motivation. And then we learned that our local utility company, which supplies us with electricity and, and the university. Um, there was a statistic I saw once, I'm not sure if it's um, true or not, but I, I would I would believe it because West Virginia is such a large supplier of coal. But the thing was that our university, uh, basically the electrons that are coming to power electricity partially came from um, coal combustion with the coal coming from this place, from West Virginia in particular. So to feel that connection, like, oh, way up in Michigan, up north, you know, we're burning electricity and we're running our we're keeping our lights on and we're powering our lab instruments and whatnot with coal that came from this place that destroyed these, these communities. Um, that, that was just such a shocking realization. It was really important, I think, for myself and a lot of the other undergrads in the club to really realize like, okay, this is not a joke. Like what we work on is so serious and requires such like a lot of dedication so we can fight back against this and then hopefully end mountaintop removal coal mining among Many, many of the other issues with fossil fuel extraction. Wow, that is such a powerful story. I love that, Grant. And here you're still kind of moving down that same path years later. We met in the, um, I want to get back to this because I usually start with this. Uh, we met through air miners. Tell me what, tell me what brought you to air miners. Air miners, by the way, is the is a global network of carbon removal entrepreneurs and researchers and innovators. And, um, and I was delighted to sort of find it and get in there last year. Um, what brought you to air miners? Yeah. So I think I first discovered it through just relentless Google searching out of curiosity, just for carbon capture, carbon capture companies, all that kind of stuff. Um, as I got more interested in the space. And by the time I found Air Miners, I had probably been with the Global CO2 Initiative for seven months or so. And I found it, and it was just such a cool directory. Uh, it just had all of these these companies all listed in, in one place. And I was like, wow, Air Miners is awesome. You know, I'm going to put this directory to, at the top of my favorites list uh, to refer back to for future jobs or just interest in the industry or whatever it might be. And then... Uh, I, I think I found out about the Slack. I think I found out about the Slack channel in particular from a Carbon 180 newsletter or a Carbon 180 um, or, or on their website. And then I so then I found out, oh, wow, Air Miners actually has this community. And then I applied and, and got in. So it's probably been about over a year that um, I've been in the community itself. 
It's so fun. I we got to know each other um, volunteering on the first virtual conference and uh, coming from the travel industry into that community has been such a um, I don't even know like eye opening wild journey to to meet all these scientists and people who are looking for ways to make carbon removal a business. Um, but what you brought to the conversation, I took immediately back to everybody that I work with at the Adventure Travel Trade Association. And I said, there's a guy who's figuring out the emissions associated with online conferences. And it sort of got everybody like, oh, man, you're right. <laughs> like this year, because of the coronavirus, our physical conferences aren't happening. And in a way, I think everybody kind of said, oh, whew, we don't have to worry about that emissions thing anyway for a little while. Um, but your calculations, tell, so anyway, just run, run down that for people because I know lots of people are doing way more online gathering and we still have emissions associated with that. And you built such a great tool. I'm looking forward to using it in various contexts, actually. Right. Yeah. Um, and I will say that online conferences are a lot better than in-person conferences. Um, and a lot of times this this whole field or this tool called life cycle assessment where, or carbon accounting, where you try to quantify, measure the environmental impacts of different products and processes, often it's done in a comparative or for a comparative goal to compare one thing to another and find out, okay, what's the scale? And so, you know, it's the, it is the case that virtual conferences, when they avoid flights and meals, hotel rooms, buying souvenirs, all that kind of stuff, they do reduce emissions a lot, but there are still emissions associated with them as, um, as you were mentioning. So from things like website hosting, uh, from Google searches, I think a couple grams of CO2 are emitted every time you hit enter on a Google search. And most people don't think about that, that you only think about emissions in terms of, well, there's a coal plant off the street or my car is an exhaust pipe or something like the emissions source is really connected to the the object of the technology or, or its function or whatever but in the case of you know, you're on a desktop and, and hitting enter that function of that activity is really separated from the source of those emissions and so it requires some uh kind of careful thinking and measurement to determine okay well how much how much co2 can we really attribute to these different activities and so as for the conference there were different sources ranging from the data that uh different participants' computers were sending and then also receiving, uh, there was emissions associated with that, generally energy associated with uh, data transfer over the internet. There was the electricity that was used to power uh, participants' laptops. There were the Google searches. There was website hosting. There were desk lamps that were sitting on people's desks that maybe weren't going to be used otherwise. And I, what we tried to do was uh, quantify as much as possible of those things to really understand, okay, how much... You know how many how much emissions can we use, uh, allocate or attribute to this conference, and then how much in terms of offsets should we buy to make the conference carbon negative so everyone could feel good? And it also gave us a little bit of motivation when promoting the conference because we said, well, the bigger the conference is, the more CO two will be removed from the air. So if we maybe got you know a couple quadrillion participants from around the universe, maybe we could remove all the CO two on Earth or something like that. But you know, um, it's it was that, and then I spoke about that at the at the conference. Our methodology, how we chose the carbon offset project, um, to to actually make the conference carbon negative. So the um, I feel like the 
the notion of measurement has been so crucial and is still. However, at the same time, I feel like measurement is an impediment to getting more people on board with climate action. You know, like until you hold the mirror up and can see yourself and can see your impacts until you can measure that. And I know policymakers can't make a step without having that kind of data. So I know that's so important. And but I'm just wondering your perspective, like as with tomorrow's air, um, we are we don't have a, a carbon calculator on our platform and we're positioning tomorrow's air around around clean air, cleaning up carbon from the atmosphere and and do what you can. It's this huge effort that feels like we could never get there. And at, at this stage, sometimes I think measurement might make you feel like why even bother trying? So anyway, what's your thought on that? I don't think there's a right or wrong. Obviously, there's no right or wrong answer. It's like, anyway, where do you come down on that? What's, how conflicted are you with measurement and getting people involved? Yeah, so part of what I study as part of my degree program is a field called industrial ecology. And the, the high-level purpose of it is to look at industry, which um, is sort of the source of so many different emissions in our current society, um, to look at it through an ecological perspective and to try to, I mean, I'm probably not doing it justice, but, but a big part of industrial ecology is using this tool of life cycle assessment to do this kind of measurement and determine from a given technology, for example, how much CO2 emissions is it creating, how much is it contributing to climate change, how much is it contributing to ozone depletion, how much does it contribute to water toxicity, ecotoxicity, human cancer potential, uh, eutrophication, ocean acidification, and, and the, the list goes on of all of these different um, impacts that different technologies have. And I think from an industrial standpoint, the measurement is crucial because if you don't know what your products are doing uh, or what the sources or the kind of the environmental impact hotspots are of your products, you'll have no, you'll have no basis for really decision-making or trying to understand how to improve those. Um, so for example, I, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a contrived one, but we really want to know when a car is driving down the street, if it's a Ford F-150, uh, what's coming out of the tailpipe and what do we need to do to reduce that? And that's super important. But as you're saying, it's tough for individuals because this is sort of a mission for policymakers and for uh, corporations and startups to really think through, okay, how can we work on, on reducing these, these impacts? Now, for the individual, it's difficult. Um, there are these um, ecological footprint calculators, which vary in, in depth. Some are very, very specific. Some are not so much. And you can go on those and find data about like how many planets would be required if everyone lived like you. Um, and then it can give you specific recommendations on what to do to help reduce your impact. Um, and usually the recommendations are pretty much the same across all of them. You know, it's things like buy an electric car, buy renewable energy for your house, don't eat meat, um, just buy less stuff overall. Uh, those kinds of things. I mean, the list goes on and on. Don't fly as much. But um, it's hard because a lot of individuals might not necessarily have the motivation. Um, and then if they do have the motivation, the resources are out there to, to find those things. And so measurement, I mean, it's, 
it's hard. I, there, there is a lot of literature um, on like the psychology of behavior change and environmental behavior change. Um, and I think Ray DeYoung, who's from University of Michigan, he's a good person to look into for this kind of stuff. Um, and I would, I would defer to that literature on like the most effective means for getting people to do pro environment actions, whether it's recycling or eating less meat or driving an electric vehicle and so on. Like it's a pretty well, um, well documented thing in, in that field. I'm not as familiar with that literature, but, um, yeah, there are strategies out there for how, how we should address something like measurement. And, and, um, I do know that sometimes people are a bit numb to very large numbers. Uh, and so there's, I forgot exactly what the bias is called, but it's something along the lines of, um, if you tell someone that this kills 20,000 ver- birds versus a hundred thousand birds, that like their concern for the issue doesn't scale with the actual number. Um, and so I think there's cognitive biases, especially in the part of individuals who may have very non-bureaucratized decision-making processes that uh, preclude them from really being able to make an accurate assessment of the environmental impact of their activities. So I think there are better ways, as I mentioned, identified in that behavior change literature that would be the best place to look for um, how can we best motivate people to engage in more pro-environmental actions? Mm-hmm. I, oh, you said so many good things in there, Grant. Um, we are working on a on a project also with a former um, University of Michigan alum, who's another one of our advisors, Dr. Paige Viren, on harnessing travel experiences for climate action. And it it is, I'm sure she's referencing that literature on on behavior. Um, you a phrase in there totally caught my 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 eye. Non bureaucratized frameworks for decision making. I don't tell me what is that. That means anyway. I'm guess I can guess, but tell me what that means. Oh yeah. So what I'm thinking of when when I said that was, um, say you have a government that's making a decision about say okay. how much you allow people to drive. There's like a hopefully so the way a government versus an individual makes yeah um so yeah like organizational decision making versus individuals decision making because we as individuals are very subject to a wide variety of cognitive biases whereas you can institute some uh, cognitive biases racial biases stereotypes and all those sorts of things we're very very vulnerable to those um but there can like a small benefit of bureaucracy is that if you institute the right rules um and have the right sort of guidance or, or guidelines, you can help overcome some of those by ensuring that certain criteria are met for making a decision um, that can maybe help increase, say, the accuracy or the fairness of, of a given given decision. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, I'm I my mind wandered into tomorrow's air and the decision making that people will make there to sign the cleanup pact or or subscribe as a member and the different uh, the different costs and benefits they'll be weighing when they do that. I want to um, ask you what do you think holds the most you might not have an opinion right now, but what do you think holds the most promise when you look at the span of technologies and um, 
and entrepreneurs that we interact with at Air Miners. Is there anything in there that gets you super fired up? I think I think it might have been you that we were talking about concrete and the scale of concrete sort of I remember thinking, oh, that's a great place to make a huge dent. Are there other, you know, is there, are there, what gets you super excited in this space of innovation? Certainly. So within carbon capture, specifically, I think enhanced weathering gets me really excited. Uh, So specifically with the kind of stuff that Project Vesta does with the large scale, I mean, some might call it geoengineering. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's a bit of a loaded word and I don't know if it's totally charitable, but um, altering, say, large areas of barren rock or ocean um, and using those to sequester large amounts of CO2. And from various papers I've seen, it seems very scalable, uh, which is good because we just have these large um, tracts of land. But uh, And so if it's scalable, we can hopefully get the price down. And I think Project Vesta, I mean, at the Air Miners Conference, they had a whole session about carbon carbon removal at $10 per ton, which would be incredible uh, if, if they can reach that. You know, and I very much hope that they're able to. Um, so it's that, but it's also the permanence of a lot of the enhanced weathering strategies. If you can get something into a carbonate kind of form, uh, into a solid carbonate, whether it's magnesium carbonate, calcium carbonate, it, it just sits there. It sits there for millions and mi- millions of years. And that kind of permanence is something that I really... Um, really respect and really think is needed. Um, and I'm not trying to insult all the soil carbon and the other biological techniques for moving CO2 from the atmosphere, because those are very important and necessary and can be low cost as well. But I always worry with those kinds of projects about long-term verification. So in my case, if I were buying an offset for something, I would much rather have it be in the form of a rock that's just sitting. That's It would be very difficult for the CO2 to ever escape back in the atmosphere than to pay for a tree to be protected. I mean, I love trees, but uh, but to pay for the CO2 sequestered in a tree that could be chopped down in 20 years' time if the ownership of the land changes or whatever, or if the tree is decimated by a wildfire that occurs because of climatic change uh, in the area, well, that carbon just is re-released in the atmosphere or if it's on a farm and farming practices change and so on. So um, to answer your direct question, I think enhanced weathering uh, in carbon capture and utilization specifically, I think the thing that holds a lot of promise and that, you know, I'm, I've been trying to look at how I can work on this personally, are the um, enhanced weathering and accelerated weathering kind of uh, tactics. Yeah, I also got um, really uh, interested in Project Vesta, especially from the tourism perspective, considering, um, you know, olivine green sand beaches and how that might be integrated into different kinds of travel experiences. Uh, can you go back and just give us a little primer, Grant, because I know you are well-versed in the science. Um, explain how it is that carbon, which is a gas, can be transformed into liquids and then transformed again into rocks. This, I mean... It's wild stuff for the regular guy. Oh, yeah. And I will say, so I'm not a total expert on that front. And I would also defer to uh, Jennifer Wilcox's recent lecture on air miners, which should be on YouTube now, um, as a wonderful, wonderful overview on how this works. Um, my understanding is that you cycle the gas through, say, a liquid solvent, and it 
pulls the little CO2 molecules out of whether it's ambient air from the atmosphere or whether it's uh, flue gas, gas that's coming out of a smokestack power plant, and you cycle the air through this liquid, uh, and then the liquid pulls out the little CO2 molecules, and then you can um, react those the CO2 molecules with something, say, like calcium oxide, and then it forms um, forms calcium carbonate, which which is a solid, and then you can just put that somewhere. Um, that's my kind of high level understanding of what's going on. So they just they have a special chemical, they react the the air with that chemical, pulls the CO two out, and they're able to uh, get that CO two from the liquid, and then they can uh, purify it, and then inject it underground, react it with the rock to make permanent or uh, utilize it in some kind of consumer product or some kind of industrial product. Um, but of course, this is expensive and costs a little bit of energy. So a lot of the mission of what scientists and entrepreneurs in the space are trying to do is to figure out how we, can we do this kind of thing on a large scale at a low, at a lower cost or at a more competitive cost. I thank you for that. Um, I have people ask me, so I feel I'm kind of like the bridge between scientists and regular people. Um, and I have had people ask me, is there any, you know, it's like, it seems like putting something back into the ground could, it seems like that could go wrong in some way. Is there like, what are the risks? And my initial, because my dad's a geologist and I'm surrounded by rock thinking all the time, my initial reaction, I had no concept of that there could be risks with putting this into the ground and turning it into rock. I have, what's your take on that? And maybe you're not, maybe you don't want to be expert enough, but is it, it seems like a pretty safe thing. Yeah, I would say overall, it seems, especially if it's stored um, as a carbonate, it seems as, as Climeworks does, um, when they inject it under Iceland and it reacts with the basalt uh, and it forms just the solid mass underground. That seems that that's pretty risk-free. I would say I, I'm pretty sure there are some sequestration strategies that involve injecting CO2 into a saline aquifer or a depleted oil and gas reservoir. And um, my, under, my impression, at least from what I've seen, is that those are relatively safe. I mean, I think there's a risk that, say, there's an earthquake and it ruptures the land or something, and then it allows the CO2 to all escape back in the atmosphere, which can be a bit of a shock. And I think that's definitely a risk, but I would hope that it's a risk that they consider, you know, hopefully they hire a seismologist or something, uh, when they're figuring out, okay, well, we're going to do CO2 sequestration in this area. What's the risk of an earthquake uh, kind of opening this back up? Because I have read things with regard to climate shocks, and there are things to do with... Um, Essentially, it's that if we store a large volume of CO2, say in an aquifer, and it ruptures for some reason, and all of that CO2 escapes all at once back into the atmosphere, that that can be rather shocking to the climate and cause more warming than it would have if it had just been up there, if we had never removed it in the first place. And so I think there is definitely some risk, but at the same time, I would imagine that any future sequestration overall strategy, whether it's national or international, will be distributed enough such that even if there is an earthquake, it will just occur at one small aquifer or something like that. And that's only if we're storing it underground in a gaseous state. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say the risk 
uh, as far as I understand, is is a bit low. I think the risks with more conventional geoengineering tactics, such as um, applying aerosols to the atmosphere to reflect heat from the sun and things like that, I think there's a much higher risk with those. And uh, David Keith at Harvard does does a lot of work on on that, and like solar radiation management and its associated risks, uh, because the climate is so complex. And if we were to interfere with it like that, it's it can be difficult to know what the what the consequences might be, and if it would be worse, and if we hadn't hadn't have done it. Um, Back to system thinking. Exactly. Fascinating. Cool. Well, thank you for that. I also, so we've been having a very techie kind of conversation, but Grant, I think you are one of these, um, what I call a multiplayer, like tell me some of your other, what are your other kind of passions and side interest hobbies? I know. Um, well, anyway, yeah, tell me, cause we're working on some projects together that surprised me that you were up for it. So I'm thinking of our, um, of our cartoon, so tell me if you have any other, what other quirkiness is up your sleeve, Grant Faber? Huh, yeah. Um, so what, one of the things I uh, work on and think about a lot is um, localization and degrowth. Um, and it's a kind of like a smallish movement. I mean, it's, it's rather persistent, but um, it's basically a small movement that uh, is critical of conventional paradigms of economic growth. And um, its tenants are kind of that that this um, that something called absolute decoupling isn't really possible. And what absolute decoupling is, is, um, is the ability to grow GDP, to, to grow economically without harming the environment or actually benefiting the environment. And a lot of degrowth scholars and, and localization people say that essentially that that's not possible and that in our conventional capitalist paradigm, this infinitely accelerating pace of growth is uh, completely unsustainable in a finite world, and therefore we should voluntarily engage in demand reduction, especially as people in the developed world right now, um, so we can avoid this fate of involuntarily having to give up everything that we've come to know. Um, and so I do so, so a lot of thinking on that front, and that's closely tied with the localization movement, which is... Um, more self-sufficient, like encouraging people to be more self-sufficient, to be closer with their community, to grow more food locally, have a closer, better relationship with their food, um, buy more kind of locally manufactured products uh, to avoid the long transportation um, that's very fossil fuel intensive. So that's one thing I think a lot about that. I like to do a lot of reading on that. um, And I work on a couple uh, projects related to that. Uh, One of my other interests is archaeology. Uh, specifically uh, the intersection of complex systems and archaeology. So I just got finished reading a book from the Santa Fe Institute, which is a complex systems think tank. I love Santa Fe Institute. You know, sorry to break in there, but um, I've spent a lot of time in Santa Fe, and the Santa Fe Institute is a place that I have been dying to figure out how to engage with more. Tell me, yes, tell me. Yeah, they are so cool, and I've been fortunate to... uh, have a professor who who's who was a um, who's an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. It's very cool to study with him. But um, uh, and I, I love how they apply the complex system stuff to so many different fields. It's awesome to look at their work. But uh, they have a whole project on the emergence of pre-modern states. And so I just read a book by the same title from them uh, that was using it was describing the use of agent-based models and and other advanced. Uh, complex systems, computational models to look at ancient societies 
can try to get a better idea about where the first states came from. And uh, so they do things like define what is a state and then try to figure out where states emerged, why they emerged in the locations that they did and not other locations and kind of what we can learn from that. Uh, and now I'm reading a book called Against the Grain, uh, which by this anthropologist, James Scott, which is another view of the history of early states. And so I really like learning, and I, I take various archaeology courses at the university as well. And I really like thinking about the long-term evolution of humanity, because I think it holds a lot of lessons for sustainability, uh, particularly when looking at long-running indigenous communities and how they're able to live more sustainably and more um, regeneratively with with the environment. And I think uh, like the modern Western world has a lot to learn from from these people and and from history as well. And so I like to to learn about these things and and um, I think it just rounds out my more technical work as as well. And it's very fulfilling. Grant, you're, I say this with all love. You're such a nerd. It's so, it's <laughs> yeah. so awesome. So one thing I, I also really love in here is that I think your archaeological work and looking at past societies and the emergence of new societies, it puts all that we're going through into a kind of context. Like if you can scale, like we're so in the moment of our lives, but when you scale up, and look back down on our historical moment. We are, we are a society in transition. We're facing, you know, threats and social upheaval, and and other societies have faced this. And so I can, I think that is super interesting. Also, I love the connection of archaeology to this whole subject. I want to ask you, um, how did you propose to your wife? Huh. Uh, so we actually proposed to each other um, in Carytown, which is a cute little neighborhood in Ann Arbor. Um, and we it was the middle of winter, and we just kind of and we had actually picked out our own rings. So we had talked about um, we had talked about how we, like the rings that we wanted and how we wanted to do the engagement and, and whatnot. So we decided, okay, well, we're going to do it this day. So we walked all around town. We were freezing. And then we found this nice, perfect little spot where we proposed to each other um, because we, we wanted the whole uh, more equitable thing. It wasn't just me proposing to her. It was us with each other and, and that kind of thing. So, so yeah. She sounds like the perfect match for you. Um, Grant, I just love chatting with you. Every time we talk, I get more ideas for things I want to follow up with you on. So you are supporting Tomorrow's Air on our Learn page. And uh, can you just top line what we talked about with this comic strip? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the um, reference point for it at the University of Michigan. Yeah. So I think it's important to communicate to travelers like their impact on the environment. Because, you know, we, um, as we talked about, travel contributes and a statistic we saw 8% of global emissions, and that comes from the flights and from driving around. Once you arrive at a location, I would imagine that that statistic includes emissions from cruise ships um, and, and similar kinds of uh, vessels as well. And then, of course, all the food and, and souvenirs and those sorts of things. So travel is definitely carbon intensive, but as you said before, it can also open our open our eyes and open our minds 
to what the world is like, and not just us, but everyone. I mean, ideally, we will get to a world where everyone is able to travel in the same way that, that we are um, in, in the United States. And I think it will help us all become more worldly and more, more global. And uh, unf- I think the unfortunate reality is just that there will always be some emissions associated with travel. I mean, I, I think it's sort of unlikely that we'll be able to decarbonize everything. And so that's part of the importance of uh, funding carbon removal uh, as a traveler, someone who's interested in it, to help these things take off so we can have a net zero travel experience. And, and the first step of that is we're talking about with the comic strip is trying to communicate about carbon removal to uh, people who may never, who may not even know that much about climate change, especially if they didn't grow up with it. Um, I mean, my whole life, it's, I've just been barraged with this information, but a lot of older people, uh, they didn't even know it was a thing until like the nineties, early two thousands or so. So, um, so, you know, I think the strategy with the learn page is how in the comic strip is how can we make carbon removal easy to understand, fun to understand, uh, to really encourage people to look more into it, to care more about it and to, um, be, be more interested in funding it. So I had an idea for that and not to turn this into a meeting, but but let's follow this up. The um, I had the notion of somebody from the future talking to somebody from now. And so maybe as we imagine the dialogue going back and forth, maybe we take kind of a future, some kind of future spin on it. Because originally I was like, the comic is two people discussing upcoming travel or, or two people discussing travel in the present. But now I'm imagining like some future voice. So maybe we come up with like a third character, <laughs> a space alien from the future. I don't know. Um, we'll work on that. So my final question to you today, Grant, is about music. And I love to ask, I've been asking all our guests, uh, what kind of music they listened to in high school and what kind of music they listen to now. And then when we finish this, I'm going to pester you for a little playlist, a, you know, three to five song playlist. Tell us about your music preferences, because I bet they're as interesting as everything else. Yeah, in high school, I listened to a lot of electronica dance uh, kind of music. Uh, just it was on the music choice channels and I just scrolled by it. And uh, so I listened to a lot of that and a lot of smooth jazz, too. I would always put smooth jazz on when I was writing in high school and I, I just thought it was cool and, and liked it. And now I would say I still like some of that stuff, although I look back on my favorite music list because I have this like 40 page list of every song that I've, I've ever heard that I like. Um, and sometimes I cry. Of, of course you do. <laughs> Grant, you are amazing. You have a list of every, go back, stop on that. You have a list of every song you've list, you liked a lot. Yeah. It's, it's like a 40 page thing. It's like the super long, because I, I just hate the idea of, you know, that song, that your favorite song goes by and then you don't know. Um, and I, I mean, it's almost to a fault because it's sometimes hard to enjoy something new without saying, what's the name of this? I need to write it down. Um, but yeah, I just have this massive Word document. And sometimes I look back and, and this is kind of the downside is sometimes I look back or I listen to music. It's like, ugh, I used, to, I used to listen to this. And it just can become a little cringy. But uh, now I would say there's, there's still some uh, different like electronic music I like, but it's it's gotten a little more uh, indie. And maybe that's just as a result of living in a hipster town around hipsters that I've become more interested in, in indie kind of music. But um, I would say that's where it's uh, it, it's what? a little more down that, that route now. 
what an incredible record. I love this idea so much more than writing a journal, actually, because you can track your, you know, your moods. I remember in high school loving the bangles and Madonna and, and like, what was this like bell jar? Anyway, very angsty. Yeah, yeah. It's just so teeny, you know, teeny. Anyway, I, this is great. You've given me an idea. Maybe I should just start keeping a song journal instead of worrying so much about keeping a journal. Um, Grant, thank you so much. It's just great talking with you. And I love working with you on, on Air Miners projects and Tomorrow's Air. And I look forward to having you back on this show uh, in in a few months. We'll have more to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. It's been a good good conversation.